Hey there, I'm Jennifer Thompson, and today we have a special treat for you. I will be doing an interview for Warwick's of La Jolla. Warwick's is one of the oldest bookstores in the nation, and it is fantastic. If you have a chance to go visit, I recommend it. In fact, buy all of their books. Every book they have is good, including this one. All right, let's listen. So I am honored to be here with Cecile Penn today. Cecile Penn grew up in Paris and New York City. She moved to London at 18 to study philosophy at University College London and received an MA at King's College London. She writes for Bad Form Review, was long listed for their Young Writers Prize and is a 2021 London Writers Award winner. Wandering Souls is her first novel. Congratulations on this incredible debut. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you I so much, everyone, for coming. Yeah, I'm glad everyone's here because this is going to be, I think it's going to be a really good conversation. I did want to tell everyone that this book, I just saw today that your book appeared on the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction. It was long listed. So congratulations on that as well. You're getting a lot of, getting a lot of play, getting a lot of accolades, and people are loving this book. So it's thank you so pretty much. awesome. So Wandering Souls provides an intimate look into the Vietnamese refugee experience and the psychological and emotional tolls of survival and cultural assimilation. It begins in Vietnam in the 1970s and follows a family who's forced to flee their homeland in search of a better life. Hopefully it's a story of immigration, survival, family, ghosts, but ultimately it's about hope, isn't it, Cecile? I think so, yeah. It was very um, important for me uh, that hope kind of shined through the book. Um, and I've had a lot of people come up to me saying that they, they cried when reading the book, but um, also that they were happy that it ends on quite a, a positive and, and hopeful note. So that, that was quite important for me. Nice. And am I to understand that this story is based on your family history? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's partly based. Um, the novel I is I would say fictional, but my my mom is a Vietnamese boat people who left. Um, she was actually stationed in Laos at the time, but she left Laos um, and then immigrated to France in the late seventies. Um, mm. And she spent about a year at a refugee camp in Thailand. But I decided to set the book um, in the UK because I've I've lived here for almost ten years now, and I mm. I I used to work in publishing as well, and I realized that there were very few stories. Um, exploring the Vietnamese boat people that came to the UK um, after the war. Uh, so it's really something that I, I wanted to to explore and, and, you know, through doing my own research, this, this book kind of came out. Well, I was going to say, like, what made you decide to tell this story? Like, what was the impetus? Um, I think there, there's a few different elements that came together at the, the right time. Um, that got me to write the book. The first is that it was during the pandemic and I had a bit more free time. And I, I just realized that, um, you know, now is the time to write this book. Um, I think I was, you know, I had my mom's story for a long time. So my mom, I should have said as well, she, she like in the book, she lost her parents and um, half of her siblings while on the journey um, to the mm. camp in Thailand. Um, wow. So I think I was, I've had that, that sort of almost grief um, in me for a long time. And that sort of story within me, and I've always wanted to write about it, but I wasn't sure how. I think at first I was maybe interested in writing about it in a nonfiction way. So writing an essay about the Vietnamese boat people or, or studying like 
going to do a PhD about about that history. But then I think mm-hmm. I am. Uh, I just became more interested in writing writing fiction, and um, so I was doing a lot of research, learning more about the the boat people who came to the UK and that history, and 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 just in general about um, um, about what happened um in those days. And I I think um. I just began writing really and um hmm. and I think it came also at a time when when Great Britain was quite divided Brexit had happened so I was also kind of reckoning with my own place as a as a migrant in a way in, in the UK and, and um so that's another reason why I decided to set the book in the UK was kind of um to look at at um displacement in this country so yeah different yeah. elements I think that just came together well, I was going to say the the hybrid narrative that you chose for this book is really fascinating to me. And as I was reading it, it was even a little jarring. Like the first time I hear from this unnamed narrator um, in the first person, I was like, whoa, you know, it kind of caught me off guard. But it's actually brilliant the way you tie it all together because it gives you this ability to tell the reader about things that really happened. So you're talking about the here and now, and then we have our fictional characters based, you know, in 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 a time that really happened, it it felt so personal to me on so many levels. Talk to us about this process of bringing this unnamed narrator to the fictional side, if you will. So so for those who don't know, the book has a bit of a fragmented narration. So you've got the main narrative thread with Anton and Ming, who are the three siblings who moved to the UK in the late 70s, early 80s. And then you also have uh, the voice of Da, who's their diseased little brother, who kind of speaks to them from a place um, from beyond. And then you've got uh, Jane, who's um, an unnamed narrator, who's trying to piece together her family story um, and doing research. Uh, so it's a bit my time away because she's trying to, to learn more about getting these book people um, and learn. She's also trying to learn more about the process of grief and generational trauma. Uh, so you have those kind of like essayistic chapters within the book. Um, and I think I wanted to have that fragmentation because that's really how I learned about my family history. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. something that lots of second generation refugees can can identify with is that I didn't, it, it's not a story that was given to me at, at birth, right? It was something that I had to piece together through little like bits that my mom would tell me throughout the years. You know, she would tell me like one event that had happened at the camp or, you know, that my dad would tell me or my uncles would tell me. And it's really a story that had so many gaps. Um, and mm. I also had to fill in those gaps by doing my own research, as I said, and and learning more about the, you know, the camps and the journey um, that the Vietnamese boat people undertook. Um, and I think I wanted to reflect that kind of fragmented way of of, of storytelling in the book. Um, wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, so you really, I mean, I think that's why it feels so personal and visceral and poignant in so many ways, because it is your story in a lot of ways, right? In some ways, yeah, I think so. Um, I would say like the characters are fictional and I, I, it was quite important for the characters not to be based on my mom and, and uncles and mm-hmm. I really wanted them to come from me. And I think changing the setting allowed me to do that. But there's sure. the ending marriage where she's um there obviously like some bits sort of based on me and, and she's kind of reckoning with the responsibilities that she's struggling with when you know writing and learning about her that history that holds her and it's you know some of those emotions were also things that I was dealing with, right? So um sure. So there yeah. it's it's a very personal book while still being fiction, I would say. Well, and I I wonder too, like the the amount of research you did. I mean, you wouldn't 
into some dark subject matter and doing this research. And I'm just curious how you manage to balance, you know, the emotional weight of that and not let it affect you personally. Like how, how was that process for you in trying to maintain that hope, but allow yourself to go into those dark places? Yeah, it was, it was definitely challenging at times. And I was writing the book while having a full-time job. So it was usually me at like 1 a.m. <laughs> in the well, dark, yeah. <laughs> like learning about those horrible things so you know i was learning for example mm. about the, the sexual assault that would have happened sometimes in the camps and and just the you know yeah i, I won't go into details but just some, some sort of really darker sides of things that happened to the refugees and and um it was quite draining it was during the pandemic as well so i think um i just it's it's a bit boring but i just try to like you know talk to my friends at least a few times a week and and when when it was in lockdown like go to the gym and try and have like seven hours of sleep um if i could (laughs) (laughs) self-care and then i think also um because the book has this fragmented narration i could kind of i didn't write it in a chronological linear way i could kind of go and work on the more hopeful ending if i wanted to and then Mm, take a break from the first part which was a bit more i think mentally draining to write so i just took some breaks and and I also I'm just surrounded by lots of good people and my agent was supportive and and my friends and so I had a good like support uh, network I think. Did you sell this book as an idea or did you write it first? I wrote it first I had um, uh, a draft so I think I, I really I worked there in about 2000 words when I got into the London Writers Awards in January 2021 which is um a sort of program um, where you have feedback groups. So I was um, in a feedback group. So every few weeks I would submit another 2000 words to my, my, my peers and they would give me feedback. So, and I think that really allowed me to take my writing more seriously and actually get to actually writing the book. Because before that, I think in 2020, it was so easy for me to just not, not write. Um, right. And, you know, so, <laughs> and, um, so I, so I had a first draft by the summer of 2021, uh, which is when I got my agent and then tra- throughout the summer, we kind of, you know, worked on the draft and added a few things and, and everything. And then, um, we sold the book in, um, August, end of August of that year, I think. So, yeah, so we had nice. a full, and then obviously we did some more edits, but we had a full manuscript. And you were, is it true you were working as an editorial assistant at the yes. time? Yes, I was working at Penguin Random House in the UK at um, Jonathan Cape, it's called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what has it been like to be on the other side of the publishing table, if you will, you know, be the writer now going through the editing process and also being part of the whole marketing campaign? Yeah. It was it was odd, I think. So I left my job in October of um, of last year. So I've been kind of full time writer for about uh, four or five months now. Which congratulations! Is... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I was yeah. like, you know, this is my one time shot at publishing my book, and I just wanted to give it two hundred percent. And I I might have to go back at some point, but I just wanted to do that. But it was it was odd doing both at the same time because um, mm. I was so overly conscious. <laughs> I think of how publishing works and. And I think yeah. at first when I got the deal, I was a bit scared that I would be like micromanaging everything and like being very picky about covers and 
you know, like blurb and everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was and I was like anxious about being like anxious, and yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hate being annoying. But I think actually quite early on, because I had I had really good team both in the US and the UK with uh, Henry Holt and Fourth Estate. So I think they just made it quite easy for me to take a step back, and I just really trusted my teams. Um, and it was quite a smooth process. You know, I, I I feel quite lucky. I was here about like you know authors you know, not being happy with how they're published, but I've been, I've been quite happy. <laughs> so it's been nice. And obviously I think, yeah. And I think being in that world also meant that I was a big, bit less anxious because I knew how it worked and I knew. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. So I think that kind of made me less anxious in some ways as well. And then of course you are thrust into the marketing side of it, which is a whole nother mm -hmm. ball game, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't know how, like, how different marketing is in the US but I think it's been it's been really funny like doing publicity for sure and doing events and and um I think just kind of seeing your book make it out in, in the world and having readers um like the blogging community has been really supportive uh which I was very happy about and just seeing the kind of the design process and everything it's been really yeah. um yeah pretty great <laughs> I noticed that the UK version of the cover is quite different, which I actually love the UK version. Yeah. I don't know if you have it there. I have it here. So it's quite different. I love it? the. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite different. And I, I think yeah. it's so fascinating how the covers are so different in the, from the UK in the US market. Ta can you talk to us a little bit about that process? And did you have anything to do with it? You know, the UK version was designed first, I assume, and then this version came out. Were you as happy with this version? Yeah, so um, I sent both my UK and US editor um, a kind of PDF with some covers of previous books that I really liked and that I wanted mm -hmm. to maybe like follow their directions a bit. And then I also sent a few covers that I didn't like just to kind of so they had an idea of what I liked and didn't like. And then I kept the brief quite vague. I told them that I liked kind of like a big font um, mm. and that I wanted to steer clear of too many like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wanted to steer clear of to me like Asian stereotypes as well. And I kind of wanted the cover to have a fresh feel to it. Um, yeah. yeah. So I was really happy with both. I think the first cover that the US showed me uh, wasn't quite like right. So we had um, uh, one go that didn't work out. But then this one was the second one. And I was very happy with it. And I love the kind of faces and the characters, so if you can see. But uh, yeah. yeah, I love that part. Talk to us about the title. Was it always Wandering Souls? Tell us how you came to that. Yeah, so uh, the title is a reference to Operation Wandering Soul, which um, was a psychological war operation that the US Army undertook during the Vietnam War, uh, which sort of played on the Vietnamese belief that if you don't bury your dead properly in their hometown, then they're left to wander for eternity as, as wandering souls or ghosts. Um, yeah. And so what the US Army did near the end of the war which is that they would play those tapes in the jungle, which um, played those really weird, like, gallish noises that were supposed to be um, the voices of diseased Viet Cong soldiers that would say things in Vietnamese, like, comrades, um, go home, like, look at me, I've, I'm dead and I can't rest properly. Or just, you can listen to it online, it's called Ghost Tape Number 10. Uh, it's really hard for me to recreate. Um, and so I think the title was a reference to to that and also a reference to um, um, obviously Dao in the book, who's a wandering soul. 
But I think all the characters in their own ways are sort of wandering souls because they're a bit, you know, they're finding themselves in, in the UK, which is a country they, they don't really know about. It's not the country, you know, they, they, the siblings wish they had been um, uh, relocated to the US, but for some sort of twist of fate, they find themselves in the UK um, and they're a bit aimless and they're not really sure what direction their yeah. life is taking. So I think yeah. all the characters in their own ways are a bit wanderers. Um, so the, I thought the title would be a nice way to kind of reflect on that. It really is. It's a perfect title for the feel of the book and this underlying message, you know, of what the immigrant experience too. So you did such a good job of, of bringing us into that, that experience. And one of the two things I want to talk about, one of them is food. You did such a good job of like, what it must be like to suddenly be not only in a place that has totally different weather. In fact, I want to talk about the snow scene too, but we'll, mm. we'll stay with the food right now. So, you know, Ann is looking for food that feels like home, you know, and she's struggling to find these certain fruits and certain foods that will help her brothers feel at home, this comfort food. And talk to us about how important that is, you know, for the immigrant experience when you go to another country and you don't have access to those foods. Yeah. So, and it's interesting to see because especially in the, um, I'm not sure how it was in the US, but in the early 80s, 70s, there were very, there was a very small population of East and Southeast Asian uh, people. So it was very um, mm -hmm. lonely for them. And, and, um, and I think, yeah, food plays a big You mean the 1970s, right? Yeah, what in the nineteen seventies. You said eighteen yeah, seventies, but I just want to be clear for our readers. She means nineteen. Yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, I said maybe the eighties and seventies. Anyway, yeah, nineteen seventies yeah. and nineteen eighties. Um, and so I think it must have been, um, you know, quite lonely for them to find themselves again in this new place. Um, and I think yeah. food plays a big part, big part in Asian culture as well. Mm -hmm. and you can you see that in books like um, *Crying in H Mart* by Michelle Zahner. And for me as well, it was. Um, because I grew up in, in France, it was such a, a way for me to connect with my heritage, right? That it wasn't really yeah. accessible to me, you know, when I went outside. So um, so I think um, I included lots of scenes of food just to, because I think it's also a very sensory experience. You know, you have like smell and taste and, and yeah. sight and, and feel. And I think um, it evokes a lot of memories. Um, yeah, And for the totally. siblings, I'm... Yeah, and I think for the siblings, it would just be um, a way for them to connect um, and to reminisce about their life in Vietnam and to reminisce about their families. And it's also a way for them to bond with them, you know, with their their friends at the camp and, and you know, their sort of roommates at the camp. Um, so I think that's, and I, I like, so the book goes into the present day and in the present day, um, What's nice to see that the, is that the UK and London now is, is much more multi multicultural. You've got Chinatown and you've got supermarkets and, and getting these restaurants and so on. So I, I was also interested in, in showing that uh, progression. I think it's also interesting how food gives, you know, myself being from America, like I get I get to experience immigrant culture through food. So, you know, it, it serves both purposes, I think, in bringing people together and bringing community together. And so it was really well illustrated. And I loved how, you know, Anne doesn't know how to cook. She's 16 when this whole journey begins. And so she's trying to figure out her life and how to make for her, you know, a good life for her brothers and also learning how to cook. And they sort of are intertwined, right? In her experience. 
Yeah, I think Anne is someone who's very, she's always trying to do the right thing and she's finding herself at 16, you know, an age where usually you're more concerned with like, you know, braids at school boys. And, and, boys, <laughs> yeah. boys, boys, and all those things. And I think she's, she's conflicted because she wants to be that teenager and she wants to be a, a child, but she also feels that burden that she's now the, the, the caretaker and the parental figure, figure of her two younger brothers. Um, and I think she, she puts a lot of pressure on herself. Uh, yeah. Cooking, yeah. which is something that she, you know, she, saw her mom doing something that she used to help her mom with and um yeah so I think that that kind of conflict and and dutiful nature is is reflected in the, the cooking scenes in the book and then there's Ba and Duck and they become sort of their surrogate family and I think it was an important part of the story to give us a sense of belonging talk to us about how these characters came to be yeah so um I think it's so important to show um that family can be more than just blood ties. It's also just bonds that you create yeah. for experience and, and those things. And I, um, you know, I think there was a feeling of maybe a bit of claustrophobia at first in the camp in Hong Kong when it's really just the three siblings together. Um, mm. But then once they get into the the camp in Sopley, which is a camp they went through in um, in the UK when they first arrived, they meet Duke and Ba, uh, which are two also two Vietnamese refugees. Um, and it's something that I, I grew up, you know, my mom also, uh, when I was in, in, when we were in France, she, she still has those friends that she made in the camps, um, that she made on her journey there. So it was important for me to show that aspect as well of kind of solidarity and, and kinship. Yeah. Um, yeah. and just, yeah, that, you know, you have, you can have all kinds of different families, I think. Absolutely. Has your mom read this book? She did, yes. She read it at the end of last year. I gave her an early copy and I was very nervous <laughs> about what she was going to think. But she really, she was very gracious about it. And I think she, it was obviously hard for her, especially the first part, which deals more about the, the death of the family. But um, I think she was happy that it ended on a hopeful note. As we said, she liked that it had some moments of joy. Um, and I think she... Yeah, and she also said, I was quite relieved when she said that, she said that it looked as if I was there at the camp and, and um, because I was quite nervous about the research and I was really stressed sure. about getting like all the details right. So, um, but she said that I did a good job on that front. So I was happy. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because it felt like it. I mean, it, again, it felt so intimate, like you were absolutely there and this was your experience. So you did well. I'm I'm glad to hear she was happy. Thank you. So I mentioned a little, yeah, I mentioned a little earlier that when Anne and Tan and Ming arrive in the UK, they see snow for the first time. And this experience in the book of reading this, like I was so there and there was this excitement, but also this fear and this strangeness. Talk about this scene and, and is it based on a true memory of your mother's or where did you get this, this scene from? It is actually, it's something that she kind of, again, told me in passing, you know, like a few years ago where she was just like, oh, I remember when I saw snow for the first time, I was like really surprised. Um, but it's not something <laughs> like she ever like expanded on or anything, but I just, um, it always kind of struck with me because I, and and I think it's such a universal thing. I mean, I still get excited when, you, you know, when you open the window and you're like, oh my God, it's, there's snow there. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> it's magical, isn't it? Yeah, and after like one day, I'm like, oh, it's actually fun going out there's snow and it's kind of like, but I just, so I thought it would be such a, a good scene to show the 
the characters as children and to kind of have a bit of breathing space because up until that point in the book you've just you've seen them having so many so much hardship and grief and i just really wanted um for the characters and also for readers to experience that moment of, of joy and just see them you know being playful and they're also playing with them so what the scenes you know happens because um uh villagers of the, near the camp asked them if they wanted to go play uh, with their children in the park so i was also it was also a way for me to show that you know there were some people in the uk who were very welcoming to them and, and show again that they did experience racism and discrimination but you know everything is not black and white right and they they had some wonderful people trying to help them and welcome them so um i'm really glad that you like this scene because it it, it I really wanted it to play that kind of role of showing a bit of happiness in, in their lives. <laughs> yeah, and they, they did have happiness. I mean, there, it's a nice balance. It would be a, a hard book to read if you hadn't balanced it in that way. And you you did. You absolutely did. It's a page turner for sure for all of our listeners. It's a great book. Let's talk about your experience as an immigrant, because I know you moved to the UK from France when you were nine and you didn't speak English. Yeah, so, I'm, so I moved to New York. Um, I'm sorry, when I was nine. you moved no, to, worry. my bad, you moved to New York from France? <laughs> yes, when I you moved were nine. from France when I was nine and I, yeah, I didn't speak English or anything. Um, so I learned through watching SpongeBob and the Disney Channel and all that. <laughs> it's a very cool way that I became a writer. But uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I think at the time I was quite shielded from, from anything. And I just was having a great time in New York. I loved New York. Um, and I, it's crazy how children learn so quickly because I, I don't even think I realized that I was learning English. But I think by, by the end of the first year, I was pretty much... Um, almost bilingual so yeah i think children wow. just absorb language so quickly um and i i stayed there for four years and then i moved back to france and i i find it really hard to move back to france because i think i was 13 which is a harder you know it's, i think it's easier to move to a country when you're nine than it is to when you're 13 and i changed school and i had to move new france and all that but i think yeah those four years in new york were so formative for me because i think it's what gave me you know a lot of the english language and allowed me to go study in the UK when I was 18. I, I, my English was good enough. Um, so yeah, and then I moved to the UK when I was 18 as well, uh, which was another kind of like migrant experience. And um, uh, and I think, yeah, it's been, it, it, you know, people, I, I don't like it when people like criticize my English, <laughs> you know, and I also have friends kind of like make fun of my accent sometimes and all that, but I know it's out of love. <laughs> Mm. you have excellent um, your english is excellent <laughs> <laughs> thank you um surprises and me. Yeah, <laughs> thank you but then and then you know as i said brexit happened a few years ago which means that um the uk left the european union and and french i i got into the uk i didn't need a visa but now people who come from france need a visa so again it's that sense that the uk maybe um is becoming a bit less tolerant of immigration and so on so it was um yeah, it was an interesting yeah. background to to writing the book yeah i bet there was so much happening during that time i'm sure a lot of it fed this desire to tell this story the diaspora of vietnamese going to the uk in particular because it's not you don't hear a lot about that no you really don't i think um there's just less i think um 
the 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 people that came in the U.S. and in France is it is in the six figures. I think it's more than a hundred thousand. But in the U.K., it was it's more about twenty thousand, twenty five thousand. Wow. So it's just less, and I think part of that is because of the history. Lots of Vietnamese refugees wanted to go to the U.S. because of the, you know, the link between the two countries and and same with France because um, you know the Vietnamese uh, to be part of uh, a French colony, and I think a lot of them spoke French. So I think it's always you know linked to the history. But so there's just um, less written about the book people in the U.K. and I um, I just really wanted to write about. And learn more and write about that diaspora. Yeah, you, you did a very, very fine job. I want to talk about grief. You know, it's it's interesting how we treat grief in different countries, and grief is a big part of this book on so many levels. You know, they're grieving for their country, they're grieving for their lost family members, they're grieving for who they could have been. And one of the things that happens that I thought was very interesting is when our narrator who we later find out is, is Jane, mentions Martha Nussbaum. And some you mentioned studies in this, this these narrative pieces. Talk to us about how that was important to you to tell the reader about grief and how different cultures approach grief and how we heal. Yes, yeah, so the, the Martha Nussbaum came from when I studied philosophy. I had a teacher who did a class on, on her and on grief, so that's how that it came about and then yeah I've always been quite fascinated in how different cultures treat grief so you have a book and I think it's something that through different cultures and time as well the dead we always have a, a lot of respect for the dead right like there's a chapter that talks about the Iliad and how kind of even in Greek mythology you know the you, mm. you have that just that want to bury the dead properly and, and to treat them with respect and I find that so interesting how that really transcends all cultures, but how also there are some differences. And I think, um, you know, a bit, a bit central to the book also is the ancestor ceremony that, that Vietnamese people um, do. And the ancestor ceremony is important in Vietnamese culture because there's not a lot of a religion in Vietnam because it's a communist country. Um, so really that kind of um, reverence to the, to the dead and that our ancestors is really important. And it's quite central, I think, to the culture. And it's something that I grew up doing and, and it was always quite funny because we would um, lit the incense and then it's not like a very serious thing, you know, like we would buy like a specific brand of yogurt that my, you know, grandma would like and put it on the thing so that she could eat it in heaven. And we burn like those dollar, uh, heaven dollars as well so they can have money in heaven. So, and I, I thought that was just quite interesting how, yeah, that's such a, a big part of that culture. Um, and whereas I think in, in, Growing up, growing up in France, you know, it's a bit more sober, I think, in a way, grieving. Um, but in Vietnamese funerals, you know, you've got people like taking photos of of, of everything, and it's just it, it's just a bit different. And I, I wanted to explore that side of things as well in the book. One of the things I really enjoyed about you bringing that experience to me, not having any experience with it myself, you know, of course, I've heard about you know the idea of burning the incense and bringing the food and and all of that. But then we got to hear how that affected Tao and our ghosts. And suddenly it became a totally different experience for me. Like Tao's experience throughout the book and where he's coming from, our ghost, added such a layer and such a depth to this book. Where did you get the idea to bring Tao to life for us? And was this a process or did you know that this would be part of it from the very beginning? 
I think I knew from the beginning that I wanted to include that voice, especially after reading about Operation Wandering Soul. I was, I was just quite fascinated in in the side of the ghost, right? And um, I love reading uh, ghost narrators. You know, I was really inspired by works like Han- uh, Human Acts by Han Kong um, or Hotel World by Ali Smith, who have ghost na- um, ghost narrators as well. And um, uh, and I did the the spacing of the book uh, for Dao's parts are quite. Um, a bit messy on the page because I thought that would help reflect his the idea that he's wandering and he's not really settled um, in one place. And um, it was a bit of a uh, a challenge to get his voice right. And I had some weird mm. conversations with my editor about like ghost metaphysics because it's like he's a child, he's five years old, but then because he's yeah, oh, there you go, yeah. Can you see it? <laughs> I'm not. There we go. I can see. Yeah. You know, so yeah. So the pages I saw are a bit it as that. I saw it as poetry. Yeah, because it was very that, lyrical. That's, yeah, that's very flattering. I'm not. I'm no poet, and I <laughs> so I don't want to say that. <laughs> <No, no. laughs> but um, yeah, I guess some people will read it as poetry. But yeah, I, it was getting that voice right between them, him being a child and five year old, but also because he's a ghost, having a bit of wisdom and and yeah, you know, that yeah. sense of timelessness. So getting his voice right, I, uh, I think, to the key draft. I would very much like to hear about the editing process. And, you know, you mentioned in your acknowledgments that it became a better book with each editor. But was there ever a time when you thought, no, you don't get it? Or was it always like, oh, yes, that's great advice? Like, how much back and forth happened there? Yeah, I think because I had worked in editorial, I was aware that sometimes you just got to listen to advice and, and you got to be a bit <laughs> flexible, even though it's not always enjoyable but I, I was it was interesting when I was having conversations with different agents uh, because I had some agents who wanted to represent me but who said I want you to lose the doubt part I don't think they're right and I had some agents saying I love the doubt parts so I want you to add more um mm-hmm. so I mean subjective right and I I I think from the start I had an idea of what I wanted the book to be and I knew that I wanted the doubt part so I knew that I wanted the book to be have this fragmented narration and I knew that it wouldn't work for, for everyone, but um, I think you can always tell when a writer is having fun and, and when a writer, you know, likes what they're doing. And so I, I wanted to keep, you know, that part because it was quite dear to me. But then I think with my editors, I had two really good editors and, and both the US and UK ones worked really collaboratively together. So I think, nice. again, just knowing that I had, like when I was getting a comment, it came from the two of them, I think made it you know, gave it a bit more gravitas because I was like, okay, they're both thinking that <laughs> I need to change that bit. So I think a lot of the um, editorial work came into um, adding more of the narrat- uh, narrative thread of Anton and Min and really um, adding more dialogue because I kind of struggled with dialogue at first. Um, so yeah, just making that part a bit, adding more life to it, I think. Um, but I, we never, we were never really in conflict. I think it was quite a smooth process and they, you know, they never, I think if I, if I kind of refuse to do a small thing, they never forced me to do anything. Um, but I took on, I think I, I, I mostly listened to their advice. <laughs> nice. That's beautiful when that happens, you know. <laughs> yeah, you always so. hear about people saying, I had to kill my darlings, and you know, how painful it is <laughs> to, to get rid of the pieces that you love so much. But to, I think it was probably helpful for you to be an editorial assistant. You knew the process, so you expected yeah, it too. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's a wonderful book. I want to know what you're working on next, what we can expect next from Cecile Pinn. Julie, come on on and join us. I know you have questions. <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> but let's hear about what's coming next, because I always love that, too. Yeah, so I yeah. am working on book two, but it's it's still in the era, very early stages. I find it quite hard to like write when I'm doing publicity and things, and it's been such like an exciting month with the UK and US publication. Um, but I think it will be more contemporary than book one, um, hmm. and maybe a love story, but I'm not sure. So Ooh. it's still a bit up in the air, but uh, I'm gonna really work on it hard this this summer. But I'm excited. Nice. Well, I look Fun. forward to it. Thank you so much, Cecile. I appreciated having this Thank conversation you so with much. you. Thank Wonderful you. book. Because that is the hard part when you're on book tour, um, either trying to write about something or, or I always love it's like, okay, the book came out two days ago. And I always, Jennifer, I'm always the same way. We really <laughs> want to know what's coming next. <laughs> this one. You're like, I'm still working on this one. Come Hold on, on. people. <laughs> And again, I'm so glad you brought up um, the Women's Prize. That's congratulations on that. That is Thank amazing. You so much. Uh, that is uh, truly amazing. So, if anybody has any questions out there, pop those into the comments. But Jennifer, you brought up some of the best things because they were exactly what I was thinking too. Because it's such a compelling story that you have just as starting it, but then when Dow's voice comes in, it's like, <laughs> whoa, it's yeah, just like yeah. that was for me. I was like. Then it just took the, because the book was here and then it just elevated it <laughs> to a whole other level for me personally. And I think for everybody else who's going to read it, it's just like brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And Jennifer, I love that you brought up about the gift. So was that something that came in, like how, how they saw the gifts that were left for them? Um, was that something that you just totally made up or, you know, obviously you have to make that up as far as what they think about it. But was it something that your relatives when they were bringing gifts or, or, or when your research um, was something that they had talked to you about um, what those meant to them? Do you mean, like, if do you mean the, the sort of ancestor ceremonies? Yes. The, yeah. The ancestor ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's the real thing that I do uh, once a year with my family. We just leave a food that, you know, they, they like, for example, we'd leave like, you know, fruit that they liked and, and like bubble gum. Cause I think one, like my uncle, my, um, my grandpa liked bubble gum and things like that. So it depends, <laughs> you know, it's just about leaving things that they like in real life. And then we burn the incense so that they can, um, you know, yeah. consume them in, in heaven or yeah. wherever they are. <laughs> so yeah. it's quite, I quite like that. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's something that I think, and you brought this up too, Jennifer, I think, and it's, I think it's just an older generation. Cause you said that your mom would just leave you like little snippets of, you know, she would just like, she wasn't like she would sit and, and discuss in detail with you. And I think that's something about that generation. Don't you, that it's just like, it happened to them but they really don't want to, you know, they've moved on to a certain extent, but it happened where we seem to be the ones that want to explore that a little more. Is that what you felt, Cecile, with your mom? I think so. I think, and I didn't want to push because it's, I imagine it's not the most joyous, you know, easiest thing to talk about for her. And, and I do think that she's someone, you know, she's, she's lived through it. She doesn't, she didn't feel the need to kind of talk about it. Um, but again, yeah. But so glad that she loves the book. So glad. Mm -hmm. Did you have you visited Vietnam? I did. I went there um, when I was about 14, 15. Um, the North, uh, we still had a, some kind of a bit of distant family there. And I really, really liked it. Uh, I want to go back, actually. But it's um, 
you know, I, I don't speak the language. Um, so I think I felt a bit like a tourist when I was there, which oh. is, you know, mm -hmm. so it was, um, but it's, it was interesting, I think. To, and I, I'd like to go back now, I think having researched the book and knowing more about my heritage. Um, I'd love to, it's a very beautiful country. Beautiful. My yeah. daughter did a semester at sea and she said of, of all the, they went to like crazy number of, and she said that is the one place that she will go back to. <laughs> um, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful country. Okay. And you had me Googling while you were on here about the wandering souls recordings. I was, I almost <laughs> hit play and I was like, no, I better not do that. In case it crossed. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but as soon as we are off the zoom, I'm hitting play because it just sounds, oh my God. It sounds fascinating to listen to that. I can't, can't even imagine oh what that's going to sound like. So <laughs> Jennifer, you might be Googling after too. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't want to hear it. To me, oh. like, I just felt so like, what an awful thing, you know, and I could hear it. It kind of haunted me it, for no. a couple of days after I read it. Right. And I was just like, oh, the things humans do to each other is just mind blowing. Okay. And we make it somehow we like make it through. Right. And well, we find reasons to love each other and find hope. And that's exactly what this book illustrates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the thing that I find, Cecile, to your to, to your credit and to the your brilliance of the writing, this isn't a big long book. No. You know, it's 223-ish yeah, pages, <laughs> but you have evoked so many things in this and the feelings that people have when they read this it's just um kudos to you on this i just can't wait for what you have next um may your star rise to the keep rising <laughs> absolutely so, yeah with that um we're out of time at this point so cecile thank you thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful. And thank you again to Henry Holt. Jennifer, thank you. Another wonderful conversation as always. Thank you. So, my uh, pleasure. Jennifer, my pleasure. Cecile, if you're ever on the West Coast, you know where to find us. Um, yeah. And <laughs> cannot wait for the next book. So with that, bye, everybody. Have a great thank afternoon. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival.